tonight's topics, atonement and justification, but I first want to touch base on sin, uh, because sin is the reason in the first place we need God to atone for us and why he has to declare us justified. Brent already prayed briefly. I'd love to start in prayer as well. Go for it. God, uh, you are gracious, you are good, you are holy. Uh, we pray tonight that you teach us, soften our hearts, open our ears. We want to hear from you, speak truth into our lives, and I pray it transforms us. Pray for the guys that weren't able to come tonight, that you set aside time. You're encouraging them, blessing them, motivating them to get into your word and teaching them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's always a great spot. Uh, a, a great idea to start off with some definitions gives us a bird's eye view. Okay, so atonement. In general, atonement refers to the need for reconciliation between a sinful man and a holy God. Specific for our class, it's the work of Christ dying on the cross as a sacrifice on our behalf, fulfilling our debt to God because of sin. Justification, this definition comes from Grudem, it's right legal standing before God. Justification comes after faith and as God's response to our faith. So like I said earlier, I want to touch base about sin. Okay, so here's how Grudem defines sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So act is easy. It's like overt acts, lying, adultery, things like this. Attitude is like an inward spirit. We can sin even though we don't overtly act on it. Uh, you can see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about, you know, if you even just covet or lustfully think about another man's wife, you know, this is a form of sin. The other uh, is nature. We are sinfully, excuse me, our nature is sinful by itself. Uh, and, we, and there's scripture in James that talks about how we're enticed by our own desires. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek that's used here by Paul in Romans for sin is hamertanio. This is a specific term. It's used in ancient times. You'll hear this often. It's an archery term, and it means to miss the target or miss the mark. So when someone sh an archer was shooting at the bullseye and missed, this is, this is the same word. So again, we're missing the mark of God. His mark, of course, is perfection and holiness, which Brent last week did a great job going over some attributes, and we touched base on some of this. Isaiah 6.3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Little background. This is a vision from Isaiah. And he's seeing God's throne, and these are angels speaking. Um, this concept, this way of repeating the same word is a way to uh, emphasize things. Good to see you, brother. Thanks for coming. Appreciate um, it. Oh, yeah, let me give you some notes. My pleasure. We're like, I don't know where we are. We're like a quarter of the way down. First page, I think. <laughs> yes, I'm listening. Yes, sir. So in Romans 3.23, mm -hmm. for all of sin, false worship. Yes. Sin used here is a Greek for Mondo, Archer missed a shot. Yes. Just saying here, archers try to hit their shot. So this is specifically referencing someone who's aware and trying. And it's almost like giving you confidence that you are going to fall short. Mm. You're not always going to hit the mark. Mm -hmm. That's really good because it's not referencing, at least I don't think it is, 
is not referencing when you're ignorant to what you're supposed to be doing. They're okay. specifically referencing yeah. you know trying to hit the mark. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It gotcha. almost seems like it's a comfort line. That it's all right. Okay. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, gotcha. That's distinction. Um, yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a good point. And yeah, I mean, it's. <clears throat> I think that we all recognize, like this verse is sometimes a go-to to show people, look, everybody has sin in their life. Mm. But in reality, if you're having a serious conversation, it's like people, I think, oh, yeah. are quick to recognize that you're yeah. not perfect, right? Yeah. Uh, me personally, I haven't come across someone who has said, like, I've never made an error or mistake yet. <laughs> say, everyone know that knows there's some form of good you're supposed to keep, and we don't keep it. Yeah. yeah. And anyone that says no to that, they're lying, yeah. <laughs> Which is a sin. <laughs> nah, just teasing. All right. So the angels repeat holy three times. It's a common way to emphasize a word. Now, here in modern day, in English, we use exclamation points. We use underline. We use italicized. But we still have some remnants of this. So I have an example. You're talking to a buddy. He just took a girl on a date. And at the end of the day, he's like, yeah, you know, we kissed and said goodnight. So your, your response is, well, did you kiss or did you kiss kiss? And you see, like, we even have this idea, like, saying it again has a different connotation. So look, he's not even saying God is holy, holy. He's saying, angels are saying, God is holy, holy, holy. So it's this over-the-top emphasis on his holiness. All right, let's go back to uh, sin for just a second. The Bible uses a variety of analogies to describe sin, give you connotations. The one I think is most helpful or easy to grasp is a sense of debt. Sin incurs a debt to God. This is best exemplified in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 5.12. Could you close that door for me? Thanks, man. Matthew 5.12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's from the ESV. So Christ, in his prayer, is recognizing we're in debt to God and we need to forgive people who are in debt to us. Another real quick side note, the debt that we owe to God because of sin is too large for you to pay. There's lots of analogies people have used, but it's essentially like if you had a person who's you know, poor on the streets, doesn't make any money, and they were to go a million dollars in debt, Honestly, there's just no way they could ever come up with the money. Yeah. In the same way, we're so far removed and so far in debt that we ourselves could never pay our own debt. You know, it's interesting, the uh, parable with the merciful servant, mm -hmm. the wages that, mm -hmm. that he owed were 200,000 years worth of an average daily uh, worker's wages. Mm -hmm. 200,000 years worth one man owed, which of course is impossible yeah. for one man to pay back. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives an idea of just debt. Absolutely. Debt. So anyway. Yeah. Cool. All right, let's jump in. So we talked about sin, how it gives us a debt. We've all sinned, missing the mark. All right, let's talk about atonement. The, the, the words in Hebrew and Greek that are translated to atonement are most often uh, purgation and cleansing. This word purgation, of course, we don't use that often. It's defined as the purification or cleansing of someone or something. Atonement is an old Middle English. It's translated and it essentially means at one minute. And it's referring to God and man being reconciled. So this is what the word literally means, atonement. I want to cover the biblical basis for atonement. The first point we need to understand 
is that God says sin requires a blood sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> this concept is a little foreign to us. So I have like an analogy. Um, my family, part of my family culture are movies. When we get together, we talk about movies, we talk about faith, we play board games. So I grew up watching old movies, talking about directors and actors, things coming up, and it was kind of like part of my family culture. One of the things that attracts me to movies that I like is I try to put myself in a character's shoes. Like this is how I enjoy it. So I can, I can watch movies that are sci-fi or realistic or you know, fantastical or whatever, but I really like movies when the characters are reacting and acting to their situations in a realistic way or a way that I can relate to. So I kind of want to take that and to understand atonement, we need to kind of put ourselves back in a very different culture than we are in today. So go back into biblical ancient times. We're in the Near East culture with Jewish people, not just Jewish people, but of course there's other, lots of other religions going around. So you got to remember at the time that this message and law is given, um, the culture is where ritual practices are common and they are rich with symbolic meaning. And this is the most common and primary form of worship and interaction with God or gods. <clears throat> so this idea of performing rituals and purification, again, God is speaking into the culture here. A modern day example that I, that I came up with was actually my uh, wedding ring. Um, our marriage and this covenant relationship, my love and commitment to my wife is deeply symbolized by essentially a piece of metal. So this deep symbolism is very rich. And uh, this is how God chose to reveal himself and tell the Jewish people, here's how you atone for sins. And again, it requires a blood sacrifice. There's lots of different types of sacrifices. Leviticus gets into some of the nitty gritty and the detail. Um, for example, uh, Leviticus 17:11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Uh, so this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. I think it's interesting that the most common reference to atonement is actually Christ directly. One example, Ephesians 5, 2. And we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, um, the main purposes and functions of sacrifices were twofold. One was to remove sin. And this is in Leviticus 16.30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. The second main reason is to satisfy God. There's a word for this. It's called propitiation. So God is just. Brent talked about this last week. So there's this debt. He cannot just let sin go. So he has this need to um, fulfill, punish. He has that because he's just, you know. And so atonement satisfies his need for justice. <clears throat> 
here's what I said last week was mm-hmm. wrath is God's love and justice mm-hmm. in action against sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We look at those two combined, mm-hmm. it satisfies his wrath. Yeah. yeah. Here's a really key point to all of this, though, that we have to keep in mind. So I'm trying to get you to understand the atonement in Old Testament, but you've got to keep this in mind. The Old Testament system was never meant to be forever. And there are verses that show Christ died and removed sin once and for all. Hebrew, it's in Hebrews primarily. Hebrews 10.4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10.1 For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.26 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will we excuse me, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this idea, this Old Testament system of atonement was never meant to be permanent and Jesus came and fulfilled the law and we're no longer under that old covenant of sacrificing what's described in Leviticus. So this is what exactly, this is exactly what Christ did. Meaning he fulfilled the purposes that the old sacrifices did. One, he removed our sin. Two, he satisfied God. Romans 3, 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just talked about that. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we just talked about that, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That was a huge chunk. Okay, I recognize that. But again, the main point was to really show this connection between Christ's sacrifice and the Old Testament system of atonement and how he removed our sins and satisfied God. A key piece to atonement is that Christ is our representative. Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, this is in reference to Adam, and his initial sin in the Garden of Eden with Eve. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, you and I, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Sometimes Jesus will be referred to as the new Adam or the second Adam. Okay, so Adam represented us all men in the Garden of Eden, and in him were represented he, we're going to talk about covenants at a later time, but essentially because of his sin, as humans, we're all held accountable for that. But in the same fashion, Christ came as a second Adam, died and represented all of us as well. 
And that's, that's the theology, that's the analogy, that's the connection Paul is making in this passage we just talked about. 2 Corinthians 5.14. I know, you can tell I love just getting into Scripture. It's, it's very rich. And this, of course, I'm writing this all out so you guys can go back through and you can kind of like use it and look through it and, and meditate on it. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Side note. This is also represented in the act of baptism, which this past weekend I had the pleasure of going on the men's hike. We saw guys getting baptized. So when they baptized people, they talked about how when Christ, you are crucified with Christ, buried, they stick them under, they dunk them, and then we're resurrected with him, they pull it out. So it's a fi- baptism is like a physical represent- representation, a declaration, a witness of our connection and identity with Christ. And um, so that's a quick side note uh, that, again, it goes back to this idea that he's died for everyone um, and, and we're represented by him. Okay. This atonement we talked about brings redemption. <clears throat> a piece, a nuance to redemption uh, and atonement is that in the ancient world, the notion, the connotation of redemption had to do with the buying of prisoners of war out of captivity or of slaves out of slavery. This is another common analogy. You'll see that Christ redeemed us. He brings us out of slavery and gives us a spirit of sonship. He adopts us into his family and we become co-heirs. So we get Jesus's inheritance, which is righteousness, eternal um, salvation, time with God. Okay. The history uh, of the doctrine of the atonement. So people have, of course, looked at this stuff for a long time, and they've come up with different theories behind it. I don't have time to get into all of them, but there's one that is probably A, the most common, and B, any atonement theory that doesn't include this is probably not sufficient. Okay, it's called penal substitution. Let's look at this term penal. There's a penalty for our sins. That's the debt we talked about. Substitution. Christ was our representative and paid that debt. So theories that don't account for that, uh, again, aren't, I don't think, the full picture. So that's why a lot of people go to the penal substitution most often. But there are others out there. And I think it's very interesting and worthwhile. You can go on Wikipedia. You can just Google it and it'll come up with some stuff that's interesting. So the definition uh, of penal substitution, Christ voluntarily bore the suffering that we were due as the punishment for our sins. One of the primary reasons for this comes from Isaiah 53. I want to read this. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Surely, this is Isaiah the prophet, and he's writing this about the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here's the cool thing. Isaiah writes this 700 years before Jesus comes and dies on the cross. So the penal substitution also shows the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's very profound, very deep spiritual truth. 
the last main point I want to talk about when it comes to atonement is that the whole scheme, the whole motivation for God to do this is His grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a very deep spiritual truth that it's by God's grace that we're able to be reconciled and it's on account of his works and not not ours. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in the application. Let's go on to justification. The reason I include justification and atonement together is because they are essentially two sides of the same coin. Paul views Paul provides this view in Romans 4:25. He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So atonement and justification are linked together. Earlier we talked about the definition. It's right legal standing before God. More scripture. Romans 5.1 Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We just talked about how in Hebrews they're saying, look, the Old Testament system could never fully pay for your debt, and it was never meant to. It was only a shadow, a, a foreshadow, you know, a, a precursor of the things to come. <clears throat> Grudem says this, I really like this quote, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven, and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. The verb to justify in the New Testament has a wide range of meanings, but a very common sense that's used is again to declare righteous, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The legal sense of justification becomes even further evident when you contrast it, when you juxtapose it, when you compare it to condemnation, the opposite, being condemned as opposed to justified. Romans 8, 33-34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, it to, it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. <clears throat> Here's a really, I think, interesting philosophical point too. You guys know I like philosophy. It's an important point to emphasize that this legal declaration by God in itself does not change our internal nature or character. It's a declaration by God. Our not experiential. Mm -hmm, exactly, yeah. Experiential. I mean... <clears throat> yeah, like, even though we are declared righteous and we're justified, we still have sin in our lives. And this is part of sanctification, which Brent's going to talk about next week. This idea of uh, resisting temptation and removing sin, becoming more like Christ. It, that is not an instantaneous thing. That's a process. <clears throat> Christ's righteousness is imputed, they say. That's a word, you know, it, it's uh, 
given to us, it's put on us, it's transferred to us. And therefore God thinks of it as if it belongs to us. It's not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness that he freely gives to us through his grace. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Growing up, I came from a a wonderful church that that taught the Bible. It was a non-denominational. I didn't know what a denomination was until I was probably in high school. So I just thought Christians believed in the Bible and that was kind of it. So this idea of denominations and having kind of like identity and allegiance to to, um, denominations was kind of foreign to me. And also being in the South, it's real entrenched. I learned that when I was in grad school in Columbia. But a common uh, analogy, so in my church, this uh, this is like a common analogy, presentation of the gospel. And it comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. They would go like this. They'd say, look, this hand over here is going to represent Christ. This hand over here is going to represent us. And this water bottle is going to be our sin. And they would go like this. For our sake, that's you and I, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some people will call this the great transaction, this idea of God imputing Christ's righteousness to us so that he sees um, his righteousness imputed to us, even though, again, it's not our righteousness, it's Christ in the first place. Justification comes entirely by God's grace. We mentioned that it's no merit uh, of our own. Spencer, question for you. Yeah. What do you think of uh, the saying, an easy way to remember justification, mm-hmm. just as if I never sinned? I'm yeah. sure you've heard of that a yeah, yeah. times. But, yeah. Uh, it's very... Uh, very easy, very simple. Mm-hmm, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's definitely an easy um, cliche sometimes to remember. It is uh, very cliche, but I think it helps a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. Just if I hadn't sinned. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> the um, One of the, I know I go on some of these side notes, but I think this is to really give you these nuances and, and depth to it, and it's something that you can meditate on and think about. Because we have Christ's righteousness, which is through God's grace, through faith, and not any works of our own, you cannot lose your salvation. The term for this is eternal security. Because we did not pay this debt, Christ did, and we're relying on him, you cannot be removed from God's grace. He's chosen to take you and save you, and your works cannot add or take away from that salvation. And it's a very deep uh, spiritual truth. I want to talk about some application, and then we're going to have a good 30 minutes for discussion. Application one. You have been forgiven and need to not dwell on the past. Philippians 3, 13 through 15. But one thing, this is uh, Paul writing to the church in Philippi. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me 
and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. <clears throat> Colossians 3, 13 through 15, referring to God, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Verse 14. Okay, sorry, I, I uh, didn't give you a, a great intro there. Okay, so this is referring to God. <laughs> having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing, that's a tough word, by triumphing over them in him. This is how I view it. And this is, this is what he's saying. Look, these written law the old covenant God took, put it on the cross, and the power it had, he disarmed it. And this also is referring to authorities and rulers around the world, meaning we talk about spiritual warfare. It's specifically referencing uh, the devil. It's referencing our sinful nature and flesh, the world that's against us. So it's saying these rulers and principalities authorities are put to shame by what God did on the cross. And I'm getting emotional because it's a powerful thing, you know. All right. Matthew 11, 29 through 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ has done this for us, and he says, look, it's easy. You know what I mean? Give me your past. Give me your sins. He can handle it. Amen. Yeah. Praise the Lord. All right, second thing. We have a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 17 through 19 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And we talked about baptism and how our identity now is in Christ. For me personally, this is how I fight temptation. <clears throat> I did not have great success in my walk when I would think to myself, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't, you know, don't do these things. It didn't work for me because I would eventually come across temptation that I could not resist and I'd fall into it. So rather, this is when I had success. I changed my perspective and I said, look, my identity is in Christ. I'm a follower. I believe God and what he says in the Bible, so I strive to be like him. <clears throat> this is how I kind of view it. And you guys might have heard this cliche. There's this mentality. People will say, are you a success seeker or are you a failure avoider? So to me, failure avoiders do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Follow this. You know, don't do these rules. Tick, 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 tick. Okay? But... A mature believer 
who is seeking success, again, is striving after God and recognizes my identity is in Him. I believe what He says. So when temptation comes, I relying on Him. And it enabled me to, again, put more, like, Burdens on God. Burden is on God. I rely on Him and His Spirit, okay, <clears throat> to, to overcome uh, my temptation. So I'm like striving after Him. All right, third thing, we should be humble. We did not earn salvation. The only difference between Christians and non-believers is that we are saved and being sanctified while they are still going, uh, to, they're going to see God's justice and judgment. We still sin. That's a big difference, too. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> it is a big difference. But I want to give examples. There's lots of interesting t- statistics about the church, about the world. Okay, there's statistics that have shown in the church, believers, we have just as much divorce and we have just as much pregnancies outside of marriage. Uh, so there is no difference between the church and, and non-believers. And I just use these as to show you that this church is rife with sin. Okay. First <clears throat> Peter five, six through seven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. C.S. Lewis, he defines humility, humbleness as this not thinking of, excuse me, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller, he's another Christian philosopher, he's modern day. He expounds on that saying and provides an example of humility and says, when you're humble, you celebrate other people. You don't covet them, you don't try to undercut them, but you are quick to raise other people up, encourage and celebrate them. So if you were to think, so these are applications. If you were to think of like one thing that you could apply outwardly, I would encourage you to try this week, find when something happens, find someone to uh, celebrate. And like send them a text, Tell them personally, phone call, maybe in front of other guys. Like, this is like a practical way that you can practice humility this week. <clears throat> but I think also these other you know, things can be practiced. 